Good afternoon. Such a great joy to be with you here today and uh, to worship with you and uh, to a fellowship with you and also to share with you. I love stories. I love to hear stories. I love to tell stories. So you're going to be hearing quite a few stories this evening, but I'd like to begin by reading just one verse from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, and verse 33. Most of you, all of you, I take it, know it by heart. Matthew 6, 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So I just got in from California a little while ago where we live. My wife and I. And uh, we've raised four kids. They're all married, graduates, and doing great things. But I begin by telling you a little California story. It happened a long time ago, but not that long ago. It's about a man called Joseph Strauss. He was born, not in California, but in Ohio. And in 1870, the days when there were horses and buggies, and Joseph Strauss journeyed to California, in those days a long, long journey, and he went to the Bay Area, San Francisco, and he saw this vast body of water, very, very turbulent. And you know, to get to the other side in those days, it was a long, arduous journey. Horse and buggy, and then the early days of the automobile, they were not that uh, stable as they are today. Uh, They would break down and so on. And Joseph Strauss decided that he would build a bridge. Now, that's a vast piece of water. And people thought he was crazy. He was out of his mind. But he was determined. And he worked at it. Well, it wasn't that easy because even the War Department of the United States government was against it. He stood up against even the authorities. He was determined. Long story short, Joseph Strauss built the Golden Gate Bridge. In those days, the greatest bridge in the world. Most beautiful bridge. And also it turned out to be one of the most useful bridges. Do you know that bridge was two miles long? We're talking about the San Francisco Bridge. Bay and the Pacific Ocean coming together. And this bridge is solving a major problem of getting over to the other side. Two miles long. Do you know how high? 746 feet high. It was not easy. It was a major task, but he was determined. Finally, the bridge was opened. In 1937, Strauss died in 38. So he did get to see it open. He didn't live long after that, but the job was done. And the world talked about the Golden Gate Bridge. And my dear friends, in the interim, there have been over 2 billion crossings. And they continue to cross over that Golden Gate Bridge. 100,000 crossings every day. And it did come at a price. Eleven people lost their lives during the making of that, building of that bridge. Well, there's another bridge that's even greater than the Golden Gate Bridge. Magnificently more important. And that bridge is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because 
we as a human race sinned against God. We were alienated from God, separated from God. We lost fellowship with God. We lost communion with God. We lost that once upon a time oneness with God. But the God of our Bible is a God of love. For God so loved this world that he gave his only son, Jesus Christ, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but should have everlasting life. A God of love. And in his love for us, he sent the Lord Jesus Christ to the sin-cursed corrupt earth and to die in our place. So that through his death on Calvary's cross, we can have remission of sin, we can have freedom, we can have peace, we can have salvation, we can have eternal life, and so much more. God's bridge to this earth. Uh, Many years ago, I think it was in the 60s, I was in London, and the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, Dr. Bill Bright, who became a dear friend, uh, and and I, we were were in the Westminster area. There was a conference, I was a speaker, and he said, let's go go do some witnessing. And he had a whole stack of a little book, let's call this The Four Spiritual Laws. They had printed millions of those. And he showed me how to use it. And what I loved about that little book, even though it was very much criticized, um, was, was the, the, the diagram where the cross bridged that chasm, that gap. And it was amazing, this tiny little booklet. You read it to people, you had them read it with you, and at the end they would make a decision to accept the Lord Jesus Christ because they got the message. And through this bridge, the Lord Jesus Christ, we too who are his followers, we who are his disciples, his servants, his friends, we too can be bridge builders or even become bridge ourselves to a certain extent. Our world is in chaos. I don't need to tell you anything about our world. You know it. You see the news. You read it. It's awful what's happening out there. I've had the opportunity to travel to many places with the gospel. And I've seen a lot. I've witnessed a lot. And dear friends, one of the things that thrills me in this very needy, dark world is to see God at work in spite of all, in the midst of it all. I've had the joy of meeting some terrific Christians, awesome Christians, men and women, even children who love the Lord. And I'm going to share with you a few of these encounters, these people, and even some of my own experiences along the way. So let me start at the beginning of my own story. I was born in a very religious Hindu home. We descended from a long line, as you heard earlier on, of Brahmin leaders. Hinduism is the only religion in the world that has a caste system. And I used to be very proud of the caste system um, because we were Brahmins. It's the highest caste. The majority of Hindus belong to the lower and lowest caste. I was talking to a lady on the plane sitting next to me coming over from California today, and she listened very well. And I shared with her uh, the fact that, you know, in California where we live, the word untouchable has a totally opposite meaning. Like Kobe Bryant was untouchable. He's, of course, died now. And Michael Jordan and all these great athletes, they're untouchable. Well, in India, untouchable has the opposite meaning. They are the lowest, and you don't want to go anywhere near them, of course, if you're Hindu. The higher caste, avoid, uh, uh, the higher caste members avoid them. The 
ill-treated, they are ignored, they are neglected. As we meet here in this auditorium today, as I talk to you, let me tell you, there are 900 million low-castes in India suffering. They live in abject poverty in villages where there is no paved roads, no electricity, no indoor plumbing, no running water, no schools, no hospitals, no medical care. I speak in the universities all over the world. I speak in universities in India, Mumbai, formerly Bombay, and New Delhi, and Bangalore, and all these places, Madras, now Chennai. But I always take time to go to the villages. Perhaps 50% of my time I spend in the villages. And I sit with these people and I eat with these people and I talk with these people and I share the good news with them. And it's heartbreaking to see the, the plight of the poor in India. But on the other end, on the other uh, end of the spectrum, you have the Brahmins, the high caste, the privileged. The moment you're born Brahmin, you are divine. So Hindus worship the Brahmins. My great-grandfather was a Brahmin guru and priest. So was my grandfather, my father. My grandfather was um, something of a Hindu Gideon. You know, when you go to the hotel and you pull that little drawer open, you see a Gideon Bible. Well, my Hindu grandfather collected money in India uh, to buy Hindu Bibles to take it to the uh, diaspora, the colonies. India was a British colony, as you all know, and there were lots... uh, the British had more colonies than any other nation in the world, and they took Indians to some of the other colonies, uh, 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 like um, Guyana in South America, and, uh, and Trinidad, and Jamaica, and Fiji in the Pacific, and, and Uganda, and Tanzania, and, and Kenya, and South Africa. You find Indians. Uh, just a few years ago, before uh, COVID, I preached in South Africa and also Uganda, Tanzania, those countries I mentioned. But in, in uh, South Africa, there are three million Indians in, the, in, in Durban alone. So I had a great time uh, ministering to these people. And many of the Hindus come out to hear me because of my name, because of my last name. I used to be proud of it. Today it doesn't mean anything, but it's a title. Maharaj means great king. It could mean politically, it could also mean spiritually. And so my... Four bears were spiritual Maharajas. They come out, these Indians, they come out and they hear, and then they get the shock of their lives to hear that I'm a Christian. And many of them convert. I love it. I love it when they don't know what, they were gonna, what they're going to hear, but then they end up hearing the gospel. So, my paternal grandfather was a high priest in the holy city Banaras, India. And... Uh, He collected money to buy scriptures, as I said, something of a Hindu Gideon. And he went to the colonies, Guyana and Trinidad and so on, to distribute the Hindu scriptures. He lived in Trinidad, the last island in the West Indies. He built temples. My father, like my grandfather, followed suit. He became a guru and a spiritual master of sorts. My father, in order to reach his goal in Hinduism, took a number of vows, religious vows. He vowed not to go anywhere. He stayed in the same room on a wooden bed of his choice, meditating all day with his hands clasped, his eyes closed, in the lotus position, the yogi position, meditating all day. He vowed not to cut his hair or his beard. He vowed not to go anywhere. He stayed in the same place all day long. Because he believed this world was maya. It didn't exist. According to Hinduism, this world is an illusion. He didn't want to interface with this world of illusion. He wanted to reach the highest goal of Hinduism in this life. The highest goal is called moksha, deliverance from time, space, and the elements. Uh, The highest goal is to look into yourself and to realize that you are divine, you are God. So many people here in the United States and in Europe, I just got back from Europe. Um, My wife and I, we were there for one month, a wonderful time of ministry. Uh, And all over Europe, you find people into yoga and meditation. And and they think yoga has to do with uh, fitness and... um, relaxation and and so on. Well, I'll tell you. 
It's very deceptive. Yoga is at the, is at the heart of Hinduism. There's no Hinduism without yoga. There's no yoga without Hinduism. Hinduism is the main vehicle through which uh, the Hindu tries to attain salvation. And the highest goal of yoga, regardless of what type of yoga you do, Hatha Yoga and Mantra Yoga and Tantra Yoga, the highest goal is to look into yourself and to find the true self and to find that the self is God. Now, no Christian should ever be indulging in this type of thing if you really are a Christian and you really believe the Bible. Because no Christian in his right mind would want to say, I am divine, I am God. God and only God is divine. Always was and always will be. So yoga in this country is very deceptive, very misleading, very subtle. And my father practiced yoga and meditation and he, because he wanted to reach his self-realization goal. He also vowed not to have any marital or conjugal relationship one day after he married my very beautiful mother. And you know the Hindus, they accept this. He took a vow of celibacy. Well, somehow, anyhow, I was born. <laughs> and I grew up in this atmosphere and I saw how my father lived. I saw how the devotees, the disciples came and worshipped him. They brought their gifts and their offerings to him. And I was proud of him as a very religious young Hindu child. I would go to him every day. I would stand at his bedside. And it's a wooden bed for discipline's sake. And I would try to communicate at the age of four, five, six. What do you say, you know, to your father, whatever. But I never, ever, ever heard my father's voice, not once, because he took a vow of silence, not even to talk to my mother. That's the kind of price some religious people would pay to reach their spiritual goal to reach salvation. It's all about self, self, self. Works, works, works. It's complicated. It's difficult. It's tough. It's not easy. And you compare that with a message of the gospel, which is so much easier and so simple. Christ died on the cross and shed his blood so that through the shedding of his precious blood, we have the remission of sin. We have cleansing. We have salvation and eternal life freely. We don't have to pay for it. We don't have to make uh, long pilgrimages. We don't have to make that kind of a sacrifice that my dear precious father made trying to reach his goal. One day, uh, a relative who was a religious Hindu but a businessman um, came by and he said it was time for my father to end this way of life. My father had lived like that for eight long years. I was just over seven years old. Eight years like that. And my father, and, and he decided, well, the best place to start is to have his hair cut. So you remember, my father had vowed not to cut his hair. And they put scissors to my father's hair. True story. I even wrote it in my book, Death of a Guru. All my Hindu relatives know it's true. The moment they cut my father's hair, he fell back and died on the spot. And for me, at the age of seven, that was a great shock and a great loss. I had dreamed of playing cricket with my dad, playing tennis, whatever, going to the beach, going to the river. None of that was now going to happen. He's gone. And you know, as the only Brahmin child, my father was cremated and I, at seven, had to light the fire to cremate my father's body. Something I'll never ever forget as long as I live. And dear friends, I grew up very religious. I was training to become a guru, a spiritual leader. I meditated every day. Worship the gods, many, many gods. In Hinduism, there are 333 million gods. As if that's not enough, we also worship the animals. I prayed to the elephant and to the cow and to the monkey and to the snake. Hindus don't really kill snakes. In my village, there was a, a, 
a, um, a family that had a monkey, and after I finished my homework, I would run to their backyard to pray to this monkey, to commune with this monkey. Here's a trivia for, for you folks, you good Americans. You better know the answer. The first American tourists went to India, and they saw the Hindu man worshipping the cow. What were their first two words? Anybody? Holy cow. <laughs> That's where it comes from. <laughs> because in Hinduism, the cow really is sacred, holy. I stood in front of this cow and prayed to this cow every day, believing that the cow was God, that the cow was divine. But dear friends, in spite of all of my religiosity and spirituality and religious experiences through my meditation and yoga, I would have trances, journeys to other worlds. I would see all kinds of uh, psychedelic motions and colors and so on. The more you experience, the more divine you are. But deep in my heart, I was empty, dissatisfied, lonely, unhappy. And I set off on a pursuit of the truth. I wanted to know the true God. I always knew that God existed, that there was God, the creator, but I did not know God myself, personally. I wanted to know where I was going to go when I died. I believed in reincarnation as a Hindu. My mom taught me when a mosquito sat on my arm, stuck its proboscis in my flesh and drew blood, don't ever swat it. The attitude should be like, cheers. So I never killed a mosquito, never killed a fly because of the Hindu belief in karma. If you kill a mosquito, when you die, you have to come back as a mosquito and be killed in like manner. You kill a rat, you'll come back as a rat. I know Americans love hot dogs and sausage. But when you die, guess what's happening? But I wanted to know where I was going to go when I died. I just realized that reincarnation was an endless cycle without hope. Reincarnation is popular today. There are many books and articles and there are Hollywood stars that believe in it. But it doesn't hold out any hope. Where are we going when we die? You go to the airport, you see so many people traveling all over the world, traveling, traveling, traveling. Where are we really going? And the final analysis. I wanted to know. And there, friends, one day somebody came to my home and shared with me the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a lady, a young lady. Now, she knew about me, and she wanted to reach me. She befriended my cousin, lady cousin, called Shanti. And she asked if she could come to our home. Shanti organized it, arranged it for her to come to our home to speak to this Brahmin about Jesus Christ. She was a Brahmin who found the Lord Jesus Christ, actually in a Billy Graham crusade. And now she was sharing the gospel with me and she told me God loves me and Jesus Christ died on a cross to forgive all my sins. And God wants to come into my life, but he would come through Jesus who said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I was upset. I was angry. I told her mean things. I told her... <laughs> Awful things. I told her, I was born a Hindu. I would die a Hindu. I would never, ever become a Christian. Not even on my deathbed. But this lady was very sweet and very loving and very kind and very patient and very tolerant, as every Christian should really be. Jesus, you know, God did not send us to win arguments. He sent us to win souls. She was not out to win any argument. She wanted to win me for Christ. And I learned a lot in retrospect from her approach. So she built a bridge. Befriending my cousin and finding a way to get to our high caste Hindu home. 
God wants us to build bridges in these last and closing days. Every one of us can build some bridge to accomplish that goal of getting to the other side. And you know what? I could argue with a lady, but I cannot argue with the Holy Spirit. I knew nothing about the Holy Spirit. He convicted me. He showed me my need for forgiveness of sins, my need for salvation, my need for eternal life. He showed me my need for Jesus Christ. It was not easy. You know what a high priest had told me when I was about seven years old? Our family's priest told me, Rabbi, which is an Indian name, he called me by my long name, always be proud you are Brahmin. It took you millions of years and millions of reincarnations coming back again and again to finally come back on the highest rung of the ladder. It doesn't get any higher, he said. Be proud, you're Brahmin. So it made quite an impression on me on the age of seven, and I was proud. And now I'm hearing this gospel, and I've got to give all of that up, millions of years of hard work. But you see, it's the Holy Spirit who leads us into the truth. It's the Holy Spirit who convicts us. And it is the Holy Spirit who truly converts us. So I finally went on my knees and I asked the Lord Jesus Christ to come into my life, to forgive me, to save me. My biggest sin was idolatry, worshipping all those idols and gods. I had a terrible, terrible temper. I would fly into a rage for no reason sometimes, but it was largely through my hours of meditation, as I realized later. I asked the Lord Jesus Christ to come into my life and to save me and to make me a child of God and to grant me his salvation and eternal life. And my dear friends, he did all of that and much, much more. Thanks be to his name. Powerful God, a loving God, a wonderful God. So I'm thankful to this Indian lady who took it upon herself to face ridicule and insult to build a bridge and to reach me with that glorious gospel. I'm glad it happened too because I've learned from that to do the same. Do you know during a period of one month, 13, 14 people in fact in our very large home Cousins, uncles, aunts came to the Lord Jesus Christ and are wonderfully saved. Each one had his or her own story. I went to England with the goal of becoming a medical doctor. I wanted to work in a small uh, village in India. That was my ambition and my aim. But God had other plans. So, after three years of uh, pre-medical studies in London, I went to Germany, where I was doing some uh, ministry. And I had a conversation with an American man, and God used that conversation to speak to my heart and to have me switch tracks. So, I went back to England, and I went to London School of Theology. But I did a lot of self-education, reading a lot of books. My mentor in London was John Stott. I would recommend that all of you read John Stott's books. He's a great, great, wonderful man of God. And I'm grateful for that man in Germany who took time to talk with me. There were 600 people in this reception hall. And they all wanted to meet this American man and have pictures taken with him and all that. And that was Billy Graham. It was a sea of white. I was the only person of color in that entire hall. And he left everybody and all the photographers and the press and the media. And he came to me, this little brown skin named Kampuk. And talked with me. He never said, quit your plans. No, it's, he had no idea. But God used his words to redirect me. And you think of the bridge that Billy Graham, the American evangelist, world famous, built when he started his ministry, it was very small. He had small audiences. He had no idea where it was going to go, 
But he decided to build a bridge. Evangelism. Telling people about the Lord Jesus Christ. And it grew bigger and bigger and bigger till he became the greatest evangelist the world had ever seen. So many, many, hundreds of thousands found, found, thousands found Christ through him. So from England I went over uh, back to Germany and down to Switzerland. I went to Switzerland because I heard about the hippies and the dropouts and the drug addicts. I was reaching them in London. Dropouts from Oxford and Cambridge and London universities. And it was at the Billy Graham Crusade in Germany, the biggest crusade in his entire ministry, reaching 46 European cities from Amsterdam to Vienna, that I met a lady from Switzerland who kept telling me about the hippies and the drug addicts and the dropouts in Zurich and other parts of Switzerland. And God used her to speak to me, so I went down to Zurich and started reaching the hippies and the drug addicts and the dropouts. And they willingly came to my meetings. Uh, When I went to Switzerland, I didn't see a single person of color. This was 1970. People would stop me on the street and they they would want to rub my skin to see if the color would come off. One old Swiss lady bent over, speaking school English, came up to me on Main Street, Zurich, and she said, Excuse me, please. May I please touch your hair? I said, Ma'am, if it would make you happy, please do. And in no time, there were about 25 people standing around, watching this old lady stroke my hair. And I said, I'm afraid it costs five Swiss francs for each person watching me. Of course, they laughed. Times have changed. My wife and I were just in Zurich this last week. One month of ministry all over Europe. And you know, Zurich, it's changed. (laughs) I think over 25% of Zurich now, the big city of Switzerland, is foreigners, refugees, Africans, Indians, Asians, all kinds. Great place to do ministry. But back in those days, we had to find a way to reach these Swiss hippies. And there were German hippies. There were Austrian hippies that came to Switzerland because it was easy to get drugs. I think there were no laws against drugs in those days because it was not a problem. And with a group, a couple of European guys, Swiss and German, we decided to open uh, what we call coffee bars. You didn't sell the coffee Uh, You served it for free and and, and cookies. And you know what? The hippies would come off the street by the dozens. We had a little basement room and uh, we left it as is, grotty and grimy and the hippies just loved it. They were at home. (laughs) You didn't have to paint it or or modernize it. They just wanted it as is, an old, old basement and sort. And every evening these hippies would come off the street, drug addicts, they went to LSD and cocaine and heroin and all that stuff. And I, I would speak for about 15 minutes, they could not listen for more than 15 minutes. And, and uh, every evening young people would come to the Lord. We did the same in Bern, the capital of Switzerland. We did it in Basel and German cities and Austrian cities. You know, we planted 25 coffee bars. 20 or so of those coffee bars became churches. And uh, two weeks ago, I was preaching at a church near the city of Beale. And a man came up to me after the Friday evening meeting. I was there for four days, state church, reformed church, big, you know, steeple and all that, old, historic. And, and, and he walked up and he said, Robbie, we met 50 years ago. And the coffee bar in Bern, you spoke to me, you answered my questions, and you led me to the Lord Jesus Christ. Sunday morning, I preached at the big church there, same town. We went early, and there was a man standing in front of the church waiting. And as I approached, he smiled, and he said, Robbie, you led me to Christ in 1971. And that's coffee by and burn. It was a bridge. A bridge to get them across the other side. And he studied biology, he was a biology lecturer, he had four children, grown up, married, and I was so thrilled to hear that one of those four children is a missionary in Malawi, Africa, my spiritual granddaughter. It's such a joy and such a thrill. Dear friends, I have preached to 60,000 people. I'm not bragging here now, I'm telling you something really important. 
I have preached to 50,000 people. Do you know what my greatest joy is? Sharing the gospel one-on-one. -on -one. That's what I did on the aeroplane coming here today to Louisville. And I've led people to Christ on planes and trains and trams. <laughs> it's so simple. You know, I don't understand why more of us Christians don't share the gospel. I think there are certain hindrances. You know what some of those, we don't have time to go into all of them, but I would say one of the biggest hindrances why we don't share the gospel is because of pride. What would they think? They'll think I'm a nut. Let them think you're a nut. Be a nut for Jesus. <laughs> I don't know how many times people thought I was a nut. Now, you don't do it you're sort of in-your-face evangelism. You can make friends, you know, when I sit on a plane, sometimes, you know, the flight is 12 hours. You don't just go straight for, <laughs> to the chase. You become friends. You make a joke. I'll share with you a secret. For years now, don't tell anybody I told you. For years now, I use the same opening line on aeroplanes. Same line, and it always works. Even to leading somebody to salvation. I, after we buckled up and getting, you know, ready to take off, I looked to the co-passenger and I said, you know, it happened the first time when I was flying from Phoenix to L.A., one-hour flight, Phoenix to L.A. And I said to this lady, I said, ma'am, uh, is this your first trip to Mongolia? And she jumped up to get her bag off the overhead and to run out of the plane. I, I had to pull her back. Ma'am, I'm just joking. And there were about ten black guys around me and they were just cracking up and laughing. It was a basketball team returning to L.A. They probably lost the game, but man, they cheered up. And that whole flight, everything I said to this woman, these black brothers, they wanted to hear every word I was saying. So I had a whole audience just because of that one little joke. I use it all the time. That one-on-one, -on -one, you never know where it'll go. My grandmother, mother's mother, uh, before there was COVID, there was polio. And way back in the 20s or so, my grandmother got polio. A rich man's wife, the servant didn't get it, the chauffeur didn't get it, the yard man didn't get it, people working in the shop didn't get it. My grandmother, who stayed in the house all day, she got it. And, you know, I grew up seeing my grandmother being a you know, polio victim. She couldn't walk. But my grandmother got saved, and she loved Jesus. And you know what she would do? She would make handcraft, cushions, doilies, and send it to the Hindu neighbors and the Muslim neighbors. The ladies would come to thank my grandmother and sit there and visit with her. And my grandmother would share Christ with them and offer to pray for them. And they would come to Christ. Bridge building. Bridge building. It's so simple. Anyone can do it. Any age. <laughs> my wife and I were at Los Angeles Airport flying to uh, Nashville, Tennessee. And uh, it was chaos at the gate, 30A, and people everywhere, and nothing was happening, and the plane hadn't even arrived. And my wife said, honey, let's go across to 30. There's nobody there. It was nice and quiet. We can just be up by ourselves quietly. So we went and sat down there, and uh, two men walked in. And this whole big room there, the gate, you know, nobody. And these two men sat right opposite me. Nice job. We wanted a little peace and quiet. And I looked at them, and I recognized one of them, the older of the two. And I says, wow, I know you. And he looked at me and smiled, acknowledging he knows me too. And I said, the world famous, the great Pat Boone. <laughs> Pat Boone. We visited because of the late flight for four hours at the gate. We became friends in London in the 60s. I'd been to his home. Before there was an Elvis Presley, there was a Pat Boone. Did you know that? He was bigger than Elvis Presley. But he got saved and he went the straight and narrow way. Elvis went the other way. You know the rest of the story. You know what? Pat Boone is almost 90 years old. I asked Pat where he was going. He says, I'm on the same flight with you, Nashville. He was going to the Grand Ole Opry to perform at 90 almost. Age didn't matter. 
He was young, he was fit, he was strong, he was humorous. We remembered, you know, people and things of the past uh, that we had mutually building bridge. He showed me his program, an entire page of things he was doing in Nashville. Wow. Thank God for people like that, burning for Christ. Dear friends, let me tell you about Dr. Raju in India. Dr. Raju Abrahams, good friend of mine, he was a prominent neurologist, neurosurgeon in England. He was an atheist, but he came to faith in Christ through Dr. Francis Schaeffer, founder of Labry in Switzerland, who was my other mentor. Read the books of Dr. Francis Schaeffer. Great teachings. One of the world's leading uh, theologians, philosophers, apologists. And Dr. Raju gave up this big job in London and went back to India to work in one of the poorest areas. He reopened an old British mission hospital that was closed. Abject poverty all around. Imagine that. I love that. Burning for Christ. And you cannot witness, you cannot do anything gospel-wise if the Brahmin, the Brahmin village is... There's always a Brahmin village who's going to stop your work. He prayed, Lord, how do I reach this village? Tens of thousands of people. How do I do it? How do I do it? How do I do it? Dr. Raju prayed. One day he went to the Brahmin's house, knowing the Brahmin would chase him away, even though he's a doctor, wrong color and wrong caste. He knocked on the door. The Brahmin came. God gave Dr. Raju the words. He said, I've come to talk to you about your problem. The Brahmin said, shh. How do you know about my problem? Please come in, come in, come in. <laughs> I don't want anybody to know about my problems. How do you know? And Dr. Raju said to him, never mind how I know. I want to pray for you and for your problems. Dr. Raju shared with him. He prayed with him. And a couple of days later, the Brahmin came looking for Dr. Raju at his hospital. You must be a man of God. My problem is solved. <laughs> Raju still didn't know what problem he was talking about. <laughs> The Brahmin got saved, and that was a wide open gate to reach the whole village with the gospel. And people got saved by the hundreds. And young men who got saved, they came uh, to him to find out more, to read. Most of these people are illiterate. Uh, sorry, uh, illiterate. They cannot read or write a single word. And the first thing these young men, when they got saved, wanted to do was to learn to read so they could read the New Testament. And they would read the New Testament over and over and over. They didn't have whole Bibles. And then Dr. Raju invited me to teach these men. I said, so what do they do? He said, they're all pastors. They don't have a Bible, but they're pastors. They read the New Testament 15 and 20 times. That qualifies them to be pastors. So in my preaching, I asked, how many of you know the story of Abraham and his son Isaac? Nobody raised a hand. Pastors, conference. Praise God. Even though they don't have Bibles, but they want to be bridge builders for Jesus. Dr. Raju was a bridge builder. He built the bridge by going to the Brahmin man. And now he has all these bridge builders in the village. I asked, so how many of you know the story of Abraham and his son Isaac? Nobody raised their hand. One guy raised his hand. I said, how come none of the others know and you know? He said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I thought you meant uh, Pastor Abraham and his son Isaac. You know how many churches they planted, Dr. Raju? 5,000 churches in one of the hardest parts of India. 5,000 churches. People are coming to Christ in spite of the opposition and the persecution. Dear friends, we don't want pride to hinder us. You know the verse, 1 John 2 and 11. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. God is against it all. We need to get rid of that pride. Doubt. God wants you to build bridges for his kingdom, to expand his kingdom on earth. But we've got to get rid of the doubt. Too many of us have doubts. We watch too many things. 
on YouTube and TV and we read too much junk stuff and then it, it clutters us, our minds. You know, one of the most powerful stories in terms of doubt has to do with Thomas. He was not there when the Lord Jesus rose uh, from the dead. When the Lord Jesus, uh, sorry, reappeared. The resurrected Jesus. He didn't believe it. He didn't believe it. And then Jesus appeared. You know the story. And he saw the scars in the hand and the scar in his side. And Thomas said, I believe. And you remember what Jesus said to him. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That same Thomas, in spite of his doubt, let me tell you, friends, maybe some of you know it. Before the gospel got to Germany and to Switzerland and to France and to Holland and to England, it was in India. Did you know that? Thomas, the doubter, went all the way, imagine 2,000 years ago by foot, on donkey's back, on camel's back, facing bandits and robbers and cobras and tigers. And he made it to South India where he preached. Today there's a Thomas St. Thomas Church in South India, millions of members. He went over to the other side of India to Madras, one now called Chennai, and he preached. And he had a lot of results, a lot of success. Imagine nobody in the whole of India knew the name Jesus. He had to explain from scratch, from zero, who Jesus was. And he was very successful. But my forebears, the Brahmins, stoned him to death because he was so successful. They were losing Hindus. They stoned him to death. If you visit Chennai today, you would see an edifice, a um, memorial to Thomas where he was stoned to death. And you walk down further on and there's another edifice where he's buried. Yes, Thomas is buried in India. He built a major bridge spanning all the way from the Middle East, from Israel to Kerala, and their fruits as a result of the bridge that he made. So there are big bridges and there are small bridges, big bridges like Thomas's bridge, and small bridges like my grandma, polio victim making handwork. Every one of us should be bridge building, everyone. You have ability, you have talent. You have gifts. We're all gifted. Pray. Find out what's your gift and work with it. Run with it. Do something for the kingdom of God. I love the verse in Habakkuk, chapter 2 and verse 14. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Learn it by heart. I, from time to time, I go back to that verse and I read it when I see all the doom and dismay in our world. I go back to this verse. The earth will be filled with a knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. God's promise. What are we doing to help God fulfill that promise? What are we doing? We need to do something, anything. Pick up the phone at home and call somebody that God puts on your mind. Pray, Lord, who should I phone today and share something encouraging with them. Share the gospel with them eventually. Write a letter. Send an email. There are thousand and one things we can do today that the apostles didn't get to do 2,000 years ago, that the early Christians didn't get to do. A thousand and one and much, much more when you think of all the uh, possibilities we have today. There are People who use YouTube to preach the gospel. Of course, there's so much junk. Don't waste your time watching junk, uh, listening to junk. There's so much junk. The majority of people in the world are watching junk. You know, we're going to have to stand before God in judgment one day. I wonder if there's going to be a film of all the junk stuff that we watched. I wouldn't be surprised. How would you feel? about some of the things you've been watching and some of the ways you've been wasting your time and me too but I stopped doing it because I was convicted I've never watched pornography there's so much pornography on the internet I read I read a couple articles and I was so disgusted but sometimes you know you watch this silly ridiculous thing and it goes on and on and they have a way of keeping you watching and I had to repent 
I'd rather watch a sermon, some friend of mine who's a pastor or a minister, uh, doing the Lord's work and the Lord's will. Rather watch Tim Keller. He's now gone to be with the Lord. Great sermons. John Stott in England. Read his books. As one book I read over and over, C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, I recommend that all of you read it, Mere Christianity. I talked about India. Let me just briefly tell you about my favorite missionary to India, William Carey. I was driving in Mississippi and I saw this university, William Carey University. Pasadena, California, there's William Carey University. William Carey left England, he was a cobbler, and he went to India in 1793. It's incredible when you read this man's life story, how God used him. At that time when India was so primitive. William Carey, a cobbler, introduced India to the study of botany. That was a bridge he built, botany. And it became a serious study in India. It's a tropical country, all these different plants and trees. William Carey was the first person to stand up for women, for women's rights in India. Almost got killed for it. I'll tell you why. Because in India, when a man died, whether he died in battle or he died of disease, his wife had to be burnt alive. And my forebears, the Brahmins, officiated over the burning of the women. Whether she was 18 year, years old or 18, she had to die in fire. It was called Sati, S-U-T-T-W-E. William Carey saw this and it broke his heart. It crushed his spirit and he started protesting against this widow burning. And he did it over and over and they wanted to beat him up and chase him out. Go back, you go back to your country, go back home. Leave us in peace to practice our religion. He never left them in peace. He kept going back. And then he went to the British government, owned India, the, 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 the um, East India Company. And he, he, he said, you've got to do something about this. And eventually uh, the burning of the widow, that practice was, was, was banned. Read his book, William Carey, by a very good friend of mine, Dr. Vishal Mangalwadi. Great, 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 great friend. So many things he did. He translated the Bible in three different languages, Indian languages. He mastered Sanskrit, the holy language of, of India. He was a professor of Sanskrit and two other Indian languages. A cobbler. Carey. <laughs> not the British government, not the East India Company. Carey, the missionary from England, brought the first locomotive to India. They weren't even rails. <laughs> what do you do with the locomotive when there are no rails? <laughs> and it turned British transport, uh, Indian transport around. William Carey was the first non-Indian to be commemorated in an Indian stamp, in independent India. The Lord Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you to bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain. Are we bearing fruit? Fruit for the kingdom. Build a bridge. Use that bridge to reach somebody for Christ. You don't know where it's going to go. You don't know how big it's going to become. Two quick, more, two, two more quick examples I'll share with you, and we'll wrap up here. Operation Mobilization started by an American man called George Burwa, very, very dear, close friend of mine. He went to be with the Lord recently. He was a student at Moody Bible Institute, and he recruited friends to go with him and share the gospel. They went to Mexico. And he was leaving Mexico. A pastor didn't have shoes. George Wover took out his shoes and gave it to the pastor and walked back to America barefoot. <laughs> took off his jacket and gave it to somebody else. And then they eventually went to India. OM has had now over 25,000 young people from all over the West and other countries going out to do missions, to do uh, evangelism. 25,000. They have uh, two ocean-going ships, uh, uh, Dula, uh, the, the Logos, now Logos too, and Dulos. They go from port to port all over Africa, all over Asia, sharing the gospel. George Weber, when he went to Mexico with this little group of nobodies, he had no idea where this organization was going to go. 
But he built a bridge. He started. He did something. And God blessed it and expanded it. The other example is um, uh, the, 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 the mercy ships. You've probably heard about them. Anastasis, which means resurrection. Founder is another friend of mine, Don Stevens. That ship goes all over Africa. It's a medical ship, uh, Anastasis. And they, 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 they operate on cleft lips and all kinds of deformities. And, you know, they've reached so many thousands of people, medically, but tens of thousands with the gospel. I love the work they're doing. In fact, there was a documentary on 60 Minutes, television, CBS. I watched this thing expecting all along that they would trash it, they would just criticize it, and it didn't happen. I was surprised. You know how the media likes to trash Christian things. At the end, Don Stephen did get to say that they do it because they were Christians. It's a major bridge, a ship, taking the gospel. But Don Stephen didn't know one day he was going to raise funds to buy a ship. I was in the prayer meeting in London, Bromley, England, when George Verwa called for prayer for this first ship, the Logos. I, we, I was part of the OM team, and you know what? We hardly had food to eat, and we would drive for miles and miles, and when we wanted to sleep, we would stop and ask some farmer if we could sleep in his barn on the hay. And now this crazy guy, George Verwa, is asking us to pray uh, for money for a ship. We're sleeping on hay. <laughs> Can't get a room in town. And trusting God. You know what? I was in that first prayer meeting. And right there and then, that very hour, the money for the down payment for a ship that they found in Denmark came in. And till this day, we don't know. Who put that money in an envelope and put it in George Verva's hand while he had his eyes closed and praying? Some angel. <laughs> and they bought the Logos. And then the Doulos. Major bridge. Hundreds of thousands of people have gotten saved through those ships. Get on your knees, brother and sister. Ask God, Lord, what is my role in Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 14? How would you use me to fulfill your promise? And secondly, I want to challenge you. One of my other favorite places, uh, verses in the Bible to read is, is, is Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9. I read it over and over. I've had the joy of preaching in 120 countries. I've never planned to visit 120 countries. I only left home for England to study medicine. I never became a doctor, as you heard. I switched tracks. <laughs> and I was going to go back home. God sent me to 120 countries, 1,000 cities worldwide. In every single city, I can say I have converts. Every city, without exception. It's the grace of God. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's nothing about me. It's just God helping me to be obedient. To listen to his voice and do what he's asking me to do. And before I share this verse with you, let me tell you, one of the craziest things God had me do in my years of ministry, I'm now 76, and there's no retirement for me. I'll retire in heaven. I'll be an eternal retirement. I was in East Germany. I was speaking for InterVarsity Fellowship covertly at, you know where? The Karl Marx University. We could not have the meeting at the university. We had it in a nearby farmhouse. The students were invited and asked to come two by two, slowly, quietly, because as soon as the Stasi, the police, the communist police saw a crowd, they would move in and you'll get all arrested. We had a couple hundred students in this farmhouse, a big farmhouse, and I preached every day. And they got saved. And on the way back, I had to go to Stuttgart. I had an American Egyptian with me, my traveling pal. And then we went through Berlin and we saw this big crowd. Oh, my goodness. The Berlin Wall had opened. I have pictures of my face in the first cracks of the Berlin Wall for posterity. Turkish guy sold me some Berlin Wall. In a, you know, it was so expensive. He was charging a lot of them. He had a table there and he was selling this Berlin Wall. I like what Reagan did. Reagan went and got his big, big chunk of wall. He didn't have to pay. I went to the car. I looked at this thing. I thought, how do we know this is really Berlin Wall? I said to my friend, Michael, I said, you know, I'm going back to the wall. He said, hey, we've got to get to all the way to Stuttgart. You've got meetings. I said, I'm going back to the wall. I don't feel comfortable. 
we went back to the wall. I took my rocks, held it up against the wall. It was not from the Berlin Wall. This Turkish guy got it from somewhere else. And I'm going to tell my children and my grandchildren, this is Berlin Wall. I gave him back his rocks. I got my money back. I borrowed somebody's hammer and I broke my own Berlin Wall with my own hands. <laughs> now I know it's really... You see, we get fooled all the time, even spiritually and religiously. <laughs> You've got to work at it. Make sure it's the real thing. So now, here's this crazy story. In the town in East Germany, I heard this loud, booming, unbelievable sound up in the air. I looked up. It was Russian mix. And I asked my East German Christian friend, Hartmut Zopf, did war break out? He said, no, no, no. No war. I said, well, look at all those MiGs up there. Four or so MiGs. The loudest sound I'd ever heard in my life. <laughs> he said, the, the Soviet military base is just a few miles down the road. He said, kilometers. I said, you're kidding. That's the largest Soviet military base in the world. I said, I want to go and preach the gospel there. He said, Robbie, that's impossible. No Westerner ever gets in there. No non-Russian ever gets in there. I said, well, we can do it by prayer. Let's pray. So you see, my friends, bridge building also means working by faith, trusting God. Hebrews 11 and 6, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Do it by faith. Don't just do things always mechanically and all the logic and all. Sometimes you've got to go beyond the logic and beyond the mechanics. We prayed. I said, there's got to be a liaison point somewhere. He said, I never heard of one. A liaison point where you can go and talk to them and say, I want to share with the soldiers. I said, well, let's look in the phone book. He laughed. He says, in East Germany, we don't have a phone book. People write the numbers down, the post office number and friend's number. That's their phone book. So we drove around and we found the liaison point. And I got to talk to the vice commander. I said, we want to invite the soldiers to a hall in town where I'll speak to them. This atheist. He listened to me for one hour. I shared the gospel. I shared my testimony. He said, you know what? I never heard any of this before, but I like the idea. Atheist man telling me he likes the idea. But I'm sorry, I cannot help you. You have to talk to the commander. So he made an appointment for us to go back to the liaison point outside the base to talk with the commander. And I told him the same thing for one hour, and he listened. And he said almost the same words. You know, it's okay with me, but I can't give you permission. You have to talk to the general, the topmost man of the base. He made an appointment for me to get back there and talk to the general. Little brown skin nimkampuk. Is that the farthest I'm going to get? And then the general said to me in his office, our soldiers are not allowed to go into the town. We don't have anything to do with the townsfolk and the hall you're talking about. So I cannot give you permission to invite our people into this hall you're talking I didn't even have the money to book the hall. Neither did Michael, my friend. Neither did Hartmut, the German guy. He said, but Mr. Maharaj, I am an atheist. I've never heard any of this before, but I like the idea. So here's the deal. You can have your meeting and you can have it in my own auditorium here at the base. It's a lot better than the one in the town. He made the meeting mandatory. All the fighter pilots and the soldiers and the commander and the vice commander had to be in the auditorium to hear me. He gave me one hour. They'd never heard the gospel before. They were atheists, communists, agnostics, God-haters. And a revival broke out in East Germany. Dozens and dozens of them got saved. And many of them are missionaries today out in the mission field. A bridge called faith. Do it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now I'm going to close by sharing this great verse in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed 
in white robes and with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. My dear beloved brothers and sisters, how many people will be in that great crowd that you would have witnessed to, that you would have shared with, that you would have led to the Lord? I look forward to that day because I'm really looking forward to meeting folks that I preach to and folks that I led to the Lord. I say it in all humility. It's the Holy Spirit at work. It's God's plans. It's God's promises which He will fulfill. We just have to make ourselves available. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this hour. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts in this opening session of this great conference. Lord, may you draw us closer to your dear self. Lord Jesus, we want to be instruments of your glory. We want to be used for your honor, glory, and praise. Open doors, Lord. Lead us along the way. Inspire us. Instruct us. Move us. It may be all for your glory, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.